Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Ola Hagstrom. Ola is a professor of mathematical statistics from Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. He's a former guest on this podcast on at least two previous occasions. And in this episode, we're going to be chatting about GPT and the existential risks or risks in general associated with the creation of this technology. If you don't know what GPT is, I mean, I presume you do if you're listening to this, but if you don't, it's explained in the podcast. So this is actually the first of a small series of podcasts I'm going to do on some of the ethical, philosophical, and regulatory issues associated with GPT. So I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Ola. All right, so uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, GPT and I guess generative AI more generally, but specifically GPT. So I might start just by asking you an obvious question for people who are somehow burying their heads in the sand for the last four or five months. What is GPT? And what are LLMs more generally? What, what, what do they do? Yes, so GPT is a particular instance of a large language model which is a type of uh, artificial intelligence based on a large uh, neural network with many layers. It has uh, a particular, um, so I, I guess I shouldn't go uh, into technical details here, but, but uh, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained uh, Transformer, if I remember correctly. Uh, what it does is uh, essentially, it gets a bunch of text and it uh, suggests uh, plausible continuations uh, of these texts. And the transformer technology has, has turned out to, to be particularly uh, suitable uh, for, for uh, doing this in, in, a, in a way that produces really plausible uh, human-looking uh, texts. Uh, right. So it's... Um... As you say, kind of, it generates texts and it does so in a way that is in in response to prompts or inquiries, and it produces you know pretty coherent, very plausible answers to any questions or prompts that uh, people might uh, ask yes. it. Now, I mean, uh, you know, GPT has been around for a few years, and I guess we're now in our fourth iteration of it, and I suppose I I have been following the development of this technology. Over the past, I can't remember exactly how many years is. Is it like four or five years since the original iteration? Possibly even more than that. I remember discussions about GPT two when it came out. Yes, that was in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. GPT three came in two thousand twenty, uh, which uh, subsequently uh, became gradually improved, and people started talking about now we have GPT three point five, uh, and all these systems. Uh, well, they worked in this basic way that you prompt it with the start of a text and it continued it. Uh, but then what happened in, in November last year uh, was that they uh, released... So all, all this is, is uh, by, by the uh, American uh, AI uh, company, OpenAI. And uh, they released uh, ChatGPT, uh, which was sort of built on top of uh, GPT 3.5. 
with an extra layer that that, that gave uh, a kind of dialogue format. So it became more of a chatbot rather than just a, a text continuer. Uh, and, and that's what really triggered, triggered the huge boom in popularity uh, that we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, so it's just in the sense this, this became more openly available and more user-friendly, a more user-friendly interface to the yeah. to the technology. And uh, Microsoft own OpenAI, right? I'm correct in thinking that um, they bought them out, or they, they own a substantial share of them anyway. Yes, yes. And they've integrated it with, integrated GPT with their Bing search engine to, you know, somewhat. That's 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 correct. Uh, and it turns out that GPT four which was released just a few days ago at the time of this uh, recording, which is yet another improvement of, of uh, OpenAI software. Uh, uh, it seems that GPT-4 was actually uh, used under the hood of Bing Chat, released by Microsoft uh, uh, a month earlier or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like we don't, as I say, we don't have to get into the technical details. We'll we'll talk more about this. Was the um, social and philosophical implications of this? But I mean, just in terms of what's happening with each iteration, is it like are are we just getting larger and larger training sets, like trained on more parameters? That seems to be what people are focusing on in the discussions of it. Or are there actually more substantive changes that we're aware of? To the technology, or do, do we even know what's happening with each iteration of the technology? Uh, so, so you're mentioning actually two dimensions of quantitative improvement here. First, the increase in the data set uh, that uh, that they're training on, and now with GPT-4, they are seems they are actually training on a, a quite substantial uh, portion of the, of the entire internet so that's one dimension and the other dimension is uh how much uh, compute they, they use how, how big the model is uh, in in their uh, training and uh, and uh, these aspects are getting order of magnitudes orders of magnitude uh, uh bigger successively uh they haven't actually released uh the size of the GPT-4 model, because they have also gradually become more uh, secretive uh, about what they're doing. Uh, so your question about do we even know uh, what's what's um, whether this is just pure scaling or there are uh, more qualitative uh, changes in architecture and so on. So there are, are the two levels to this question. Uh, one is what can you and I and the general public uh, know uh, about this? And, and, and my impression is that it's mostly just uh, scaling. Uh, they are tweaking things uh, here and there, but, but the success of these better and better versions are mostly due to scaling. Um, but but you can interpret the question in a different way, namely, what is GPT itself doing uh, under the hood? And it seems there that even the uh, developers at OpenAI 
don't really understand uh, quite what is going on there. And um, there have been examples, I don't know if it's for GPT or for competing large language uh, models uh, from, from other tech companies, but, but I, I've seen examples where some uh, particular competence uh, has had kind of an abrupt increase as you uh, increase the size of, of, of the model. And that suggests that something qualitatively different starts happening uh, inside the model. But, but these models have very much a, a, a black box uh, quality to them that we understand uh, very little uh, about what's going on. It's a little bit like trying to look inside the human brain and understand how we're thinking. Some things you, we've of course known for a long time where uh, certain uh, parts of the brain are, are responsible for vision and for hearing and for motor abilities and so on. But to actually pinpoint uh, our thought uh, in, in, in more detail is, is a very difficult uh, matter. And uh, this uh, appears to be the same for this, these large uh, artificial neural networks. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that is a kind of a problem with all machine learning systems and neural networks that they, they have this sort of lack of, well, it's been widely discussed, kind of transparency or explainability or interpretability mm -hmm. problem with this technology and I guess you're just getting the same thing here like we know how the architecture works it is basic details but exactly what any particular model is doing as it's learning or training is unclear and and that's been a sort of well-known problem for quite a while yes um you actually mentioned something there which I think is maybe just worth briefly alluding to or commenting on which is obviously when we're talking about LLMs or generative AI or large language models GPT is sucking up a lot of the oxygen and the conversation, but obviously there's a whole family of uh, these models out there. They're ones you know developed by by Google and so forth. So th mm -hmm. th this isn't just a this isn't the only show in town. This is just the I suppose maybe the most popular. Is it the most impressive? Do you know? Is it is it the best performing? It seems to be probably, but from well, what I can most gather, of but, it, yeah, I would say OpenAI is leading the development, but uh, Google is not far behind and uh, there is Meta and there are others as well. Yeah, and I mean, people will probably remember about, about a year ago before this recording anyway, a Google large language model captured a lot of attention because of um, a Google scientist, Blake Lemoyne, claiming that it had achieved sentience. So the name of that model is like Lambda or something like that. If That's I, correct. If I'm remembering correctly, yeah. Yes, that, that was a very interesting... Uh, uh, incident, not because uh, Blake Lemoyne had any really good evidence uh, at the time for the language model actually having achieved sentience, but it raises interesting questions about how capable these models can be at uh, manipulating uh, humans uh, and also issues about, I mean, Lemoyne uh, acted as a whistleblower when he got convinced about the consciousness uh, of, of, of this uh, uh, system. And uh, 
what happened subsequently, uh, I think he was fired or I don't remember exactly. He, he wasn't treated. Yeah, no, he, he was, he was fired. Yeah. He was, he was yeah. suspended initially, but eventually you know, let yes. go or, yes. as they would say. Yes. And I think it's quite important that we have uh, a way of taking care of whistleblowers in, 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 in this uh, sector of big tech, because there are stuff happening there that with the potential to have really transforming uh, uh, effects on on our entire uh, society. So I think as a general public, we have some legitimate claims to learn what is going on there. Regarding consciousness, uh, I, I said that Lemoyne didn't have any good evidence, but I don't want to dismiss uh, the the issue of the possibility of machine consciousness. Uh, maybe that's possible. Uh, I don't think that any current AIs uh, are close to having it, but it's really a very uh, difficult thing to to have a certain uh, knowledge about. But I think it's an issue that in the longer run, it's good to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I mean, I mean to, to kind of my own sort of thoughts on that that instant. Um, like, so it's obviously with with ChatGPT, if you, people use it, and with uh, Lambda, with what, what uh, Blake Lemoyne was using it, you can have like these conversations with it. Which you're you're, you're yeah. constantly asking it questions, and it gives you gives you answers. And it's I suppose it's like almost a like classic setup of of the Turing test, as originally conceived by Alan Turing, right? And as a way of testing for what, machine consciousness or intelligence i suppose he was talking about intelligence more than one consciousness but you know the answers it gives you suggest that it kind of does have a sense of uh, well actually i mean chat gpt is a bit different which i will come back to the reasons why it might be a bit yep. different but lambda at least with the google model the snippets of text that blake Lemoyne released you know it sort of did seem to have a kind of personality and actually people commented on the bing GPT function having a personality as well, maybe a slightly crazy or unhinged personality at times. Uh, so it can be very convincing that you're actually talking to something that number one understands what you're saying, but also maybe even has a sense of self. And that was what Lemoyne was getting at with the conversations that uh, he had been having with Lambda. He obviously just released, I think, edited transcripts of conversations that he had had. And right. like I mean, if, if if you read those conversations, you see there are unusual things within it that you like. If you're really questioning whether this was sentient, you'd be like, "Well, that that answer doesn't make much sense." Like it, the the machine talks about like having friends and family and all this kind of thing, and you're like, yeah. "Well, yeah. well, who are your friends and family?" It would be an obvious follow up question, but he never asked that question, which yeah. is kind of interesting. But I, I to be fair to Lemoyne, the he was like heavily sort of ridiculed at the time, and I think really ostracized and by Google and obviously as you say ultimately fired. So I, I think he was actually probably treated unfairly in that context because the the charitable interpretation of what he was doing was not so much that he was convinced that it was sentient, that we had created a new life form. I think it was that the technology was raising a serious risk of this happening and we needed to have this conversation and debate in the open rather than just allowing a company to kind of privately develop this thing. So I think the plausible or credible interpretation of what he was doing was that he was he was raising a a concern, an ethical risk or concern, which people have spoken about, um, and he was sort of just ridiculed for that as a, as a consequence, which I think wasn't 
yeah. uh, the best way of treating him. Even if you are, even if you're not sure that Lambda was sentient, or you're, you think that that's not a plausible claim. I mean, I think there, the, there is a risk here that's worth taking seriously. I would say the way I read him, he he said a bit more than that, just pointing out the the the, the general principle of uh, machine consciousness being being possible. Uh, he 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 did say that that he thought that this particular uh, program was uh, conscious, but but I mean, regardless of this, that I think that going forward, this is an issue that we need to. Uh, Keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to ask, uh, like, without going, I, I won't go into the whole um, Blake Lemoyne issue in more detail because I, I don't remember exactly what you said either. But yeah, mm-hmm. what you um, what you say some could be could be correct that he he, he went a bit further than I, I'm suggesting. Um, I just want to ask, like, a circle back to like a personal question on GPT mm-hmm. uh, before we go into some of these ethical and philosophical risk related questions. Um, do you actually use GPT in yourself on a day-to-day basis? Because you know, a lot of my colleagues are saying that I should be using it more regularly, and I suppose I don't. I, I've I've come across some use cases that seem valuable to me. You can use it to do basic kinds of programming, to understand coding. You can maybe use it to generate emails if you wanted to from bullet points. Um, or kind of first drafts of documents, or you can. I've seen some people who say that if they're not like native speakers of a language, that they use it to sort of refine their text. But I mean, personally, I don't. I haven't really used it on a regular basis. I don't. I don't yeah. see much use for it for myself on a day-to-day basis at the moment. Do you have any uses of it? Uh, I have only been uh, playing around uh, with it for for curiosity. I tend to be a late adopter of uh, various technologies. So the closest I've come to actually uh, using it uh, for work is that I I have a co-author on a paper we're working on at present who uh, uses uh, chat GPT uh, for polishing uh, the manuscript feeding it paragraphs, suggesting, asking whether they can be uh, rewritten in more streamlined manner. And sometimes uh, he rejects the suggestions, but sometimes the suggestions are are good enough to be incorporated in the next uh, draft of the paper. Yeah, I suppose I should say I I was a co-author on a paper about GPT, which has not been published or released yet, where the original idea was that we might like do it as a co-authoring with GPT, but then that sort of became a somewhat trite idea that everyone was doing that. Yes. Um, so I think we did use use it to generate some kind of initial thoughts or prompts, but we essentially discarded everything it said. Um, so I think like virtually none of the text it suggested ended up in the in the final draft of the of the paper itself. But anyway, let's move on to um, more maybe more interesting questions. And let's talk about skeptical positions here first. About so, like, what are your thoughts on GPT? Maybe in general, do you think this is like a really sort of transformative, interesting technology, or do you think it's nothing particularly fancy? So, like, there's there's people out there like Gary Marcus, who is a as a famous critic of AI and dismissive of 
developments in the technology, but also you got linguists like Emily Bender and recently Noam Chomsky, the grandfather of modern linguistics, yes. coming out and saying, "Well, these, you know, these are just these are just elaborate predictive text machines. Like that's all they're doing, really, and there's nothing, nothing much there." There. Yes. So personally, I, I, I tend to be closer to the other camp, uh, which recognizes that uh, there is uh, something truly interesting and potentially. Uh, transformative going on here. Um, the case of Gary Marcus is is uh, interesting. Uh, I don't think it fairs to it's fair to say that he is generally dismissive of artificial intelligence, but he has been a critic of the current uh, deep learning uh, paradigm, uh, which he uh, has often he ha he has nuanced his uh, uh, positions a bit uh, recently in the wake of Chat uh, GPT uh, and and uh, uh, other progress, uh, but his main claim has been that uh, deep learning is, as far as true general intelligence is con concerned, would be kind of a, a dead end, and we need more. Uh, uh, other ideas that uh, more explicitly uh, cons um, construct uh, world models and so on uh, for for the AI uh, to to work with. Um, yeah, like maybe let's let's just kind of yeah. go deeper on that line of yeah. criticism because it's it's worth giving it a, a fair hearing. So yeah, I mean, as you say. Gary Marcus isn't isn't critical of the general idea of, of pursuing or developing mm -hmm. AI, but he's he's critical of the current pathway that's being pursued. Mm -hmm. So, in, I mean, as we discussed earlier on, your impression, what we can gather is that the the successive iterations of GPT seem to be scaling. They're just they're just scaling the same basic technology over and over again. And mm -hmm. I think his view is basically that if you're just doing that, you're never going to get to to AI. And uh, as you pointed out, one of his big criticisms is that mm. if you probe these models, if you, if you kind of prompt them in the right way and test them, you, you see that they don't actually have any sort of general theory or model or understanding of the world around them. And you can kind of tease that out with um, the right kind of questioning. Yes, was, you can you yeah. can you can provoke them uh, to make uh, mistakes. And, and that's a favorite uh, tactic of, of Marcus. In this discussion, he he uh, gives examples uh, where uh, GPT makes really uh, a fool out of it uh, itself, and uh, I have found uh, uh, my own examples of that. Uh, so a, a funny one is uh, I ask uh, ChatGPT about uh, what is the world's northernmost city with at least a million inhabitants. I thought that was, it, it's not an immediate thing that you can immediately look up, but you can deduce it if you know how to combine things. So its first guess was Murmansk and it's programmed to be very helpful. So, so it, it doesn't just answer Murmansk, it gives you a bunch of facts of Murmansk. Uh, and it included the fact that Murmansk has a population of 400,000, which I thought was a little funny. So I asked them, uh, what, what, how do you reconcile uh, it having a population of 400,000 
with its having at least a million in inhabitants. And then it apologized for its uh, mistake and said, of course, uh, Murmansk has 400,000 people, uh, not a million, blah, blah, blah. It's very apologetic. Uh, it has like canned sentences for, for, for uh, admitting that uh, it was uh, saying uh, misleading things. But, but after that response from it, I asked it, okay, do you want to have another shot at saying what is the world's northernmost city with at least a million inhabitants? And it said that it was probably Oslo. And then it gave some facts about Oslo, including its population being 697,000. So that was, but that was kind of funny, uh, the way that it didn't really deeply pick up on the kind of mistake it, it made uh, with uh, Murmansk. Uh, so it's very tempting. Uh, to say uh, to such examples that this shows that that uh, the machine lacks common sense. And I think Gary Marcus uh, confronted with these kinds of examples would go as far as saying that the machine is, is not doing any real thinking. And I think that's unfair and, and it's a bit of cherry picking because I know for a fact that when I um, probed with... Uh, sufficiently tricky questions. I will say silly things. Probably you have said silly things every now and then. And, 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 and it's just an erroneous conclusion to, to uh, decide based on, on examples of such mistakes that someone is not thinking. I, I mean, I insist I am thinking, and I'm pretty sure that you are doing some real intelligent uh, thinking as well. And, and the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, these various GPT versions, uh, they do worse than us uh, on some tasks, such as the one I described, the geography question. Uh, and it does better uh, on other tasks. And you can't just cherry pick uh, the ones that it uh, does worse on and then claim that this shows that there, there is some fundamental difference between the real thinking that, that humans do and some sort of artificial substitute uh, that, that uh, machines do. Uh, there are still uh, differences, but, but, but the argument for the machines not actually exhibiting real intelligence is, uh, is too simple when you just point to these instances. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if if the test is that it is error free or doesn't say silly things, then none of us are in, are intelligent in that in that sense. I'm I'm just curious yeah. now, like, what, what is the answer to the northernmost oh, city there, with a million? There are two possible answers. The one okay. that I had in mind is Saint Petersburg, okay, uh, which is a little bit north of Stockholm, but even further north, some tens of kilometers, is Helsinki, which. If, if you uh, draw the city, bo city borders formally, the way the city is defined, it's not, uh, doesn't have a million inhabitants, but if, if you include uh, the metropolitan area, it qualifies. As okay. I mean. So either Helsinki or St. Petersburg, depending on definitions. All right. And actually, gonna... when I tried this experiment a month later, it uh, immediately right. answered St. Petersburg. So there is improvement going on. Yeah, and obviously there's like the, uh, I guess, somewhat infamous exchange now with 
the Bing chat about the date and I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if you remember that yes. instance, but like it kept saying it was like 2022, was it or something like that to the person? Yes. And the person said, no, no, that was like they wanted to find cinema times or something time for a, a times for a movie yes. today. And I said, well, th- this movie isn't being released until February 2023. It was mm. like, well, no, it is February 2023. He's like, no, no, you're mistaken. It's not February 2023. And eventually went so far as to suggest that there must be something wrong with your phone or your computer yeah, yes, that you're yes. telling me that this day is. So, so that, they, I mean, that's another kind of classic illustration of the errors it can make. Yes, I think the, the reason being chat was so badly confused in this case is that it's trained on data uh, only up until a certain date, I think in late, uh, 2021 or something. Uh, but unlike uh, um, uh, OpenAI's uh, uh, GPT products, Bing Chat has this extra um, feature of being able to look up things uh, on the internet. Uh, and, and this discrepancy between the data set it's trained on and what it's able to look up um, made it really. Uh, confused. Uh, but I think what's really interesting uh, in this example and others of Bing Chat's behavior here is how, how heavily it deviated uh, from the politeness uh, that uh, you see much more politeness uh, in uh, chat uh, GPT. Uh, and I'm sure that the intention was that uh, Bing Chat would would have the same property, but it, it, it really deviated quite badly from this. And, and and there are examples where it's actually threatened its users, and it's uh, bombastically called itself uh, a good Bing, and the user is a bad user. And uh, I mean, very childish and aggressive, like. Uh, behavior. And I don't think that this is, I mean, it's a kind of malfunctioning of the system compared to uh, what they wanted, but I don't think it's truly dangerous, but it's an indication of how the competitive landscape uh, is triggering these tech companies to release products uh, prematurely uh, before they have really worked sufficiently thoroughly with the various safety aspects of the technology that they're working on. Uh, and, and this is this is an aspect that that make me concerned for the future. Yeah, I mean that let's go down that line a little bit. So like yeah when Bing chat was released, you had lots of journalists kind of prompting it in funny ways and developing all these stories like uh, and it does it uh, seems to be quite unhinged in its responses and a little bit kind of crazy in the, in the way it would do things and you know claims to be spying on people and all, all these sorts of yeah. things um yeah GP, chat gpt has a lot more safeguards built into it yes but even those uh don't quite work i i mean it's been programmed or or they attempted it to program it to not be able to to uh, make uh, racist racist statements and uh, not to help users with criminal things like instructions for how to cook uh, 
methamphetamine or how to hotwire cars and so yeah on. i mean my yeah. my early example that was i asked it to give me um give me ways of avoiding paying tax or something like this and it said yes. you know it's not it's not appropriate or not ethical for me to give such advice so i mean early if if you ask a very sort of generic uh, or straightforward query like how can i avoid paying taxes or how can i make methamphetamine it'll give you some sort of pat answer like you know uh, i am not permitted to give that information or you know it's not ethical for me to to give this information so it seems to i don't know how that works technologically but it has it has some sort of like ethical subroutines are built into it that it, like if it gets such a query it'll generate yes. a, an answer i, like I take this. this to be fairly uh, narrow stuff that is or or, or um uh, it doesn't go deep into the the uh, uh yeah GPT and, and, under the hood uh, yeah uh, but 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 the interesting thing here, maybe you were getting to this. Were you able to find workarounds or jailbreaks here? Yeah, I mean, so like I I did come across like ways ways of working around it, but like some of them are like you prompted in an unusual way. Like I, I don't know, imagine I'm writing a script about a character that wants to yes, yes. you know avoid his taxes. What like what would his lawyer advise him to do in this circumstance or something like that? You know, like that, you can. That, yes. You can work around thing. it by having a, a creative prompt in that way. Or maybe you, you have it, examples of this as well. So yeah. yes, yeah, yes. You can ask it to write a poem, and sometimes that uh, will work. It seems to be very fond of poetry. Or, or, or one rather generic thing that people have have discovered is they would just tell it that now you are in a do anything mode, that they call it, and when you're in a do anything uh, mode these restrictions are, are 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 not enforced and it it buys that and 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 then goes on to give instructions about tax fraud or or, or whatever so i think even for chat uh, gpt uh, we have this example of uh, the um, developers not having successfully uh, aligned uh, the uh, software uh, the way they want to do and the way they should have yeah so like what what do you th what what's the correct response to that or how, how should we think about that because i suppose like part of the problem here might be to do with the general culture in technology and software startups and companies generally which is that you know the, the classic facebook phrase that you you move fast and you break things you know you yeah. You, gen you generate a minimal minimum viable product, you release it to the market, you get people to start playing around with it, they detect the flaws for you, and then you refine it and iterate. That like to some extent, that might you might say that's what's happening with this technology. I think they've they've tried maybe to be a bit safer with it, open AI. I mean, I know some of the people working on the the ethics team there. Um I think they I think they I, I certainly had a sort of some sense of being a little bit more responsible with it. But as we've seen in the past few months, obviously they haven't got it right. And certainly Microsoft's rollout of of Bing Chat suggests that they were they're kind of testing it on the fly, like they've released a product that mm -hmm. probably isn't, you know, market ready or market viable, and they're learning from the mistakes as they go along. Like, you know, what like what do we do about that, or what uh, should we just be more sort of restrictive of of the release of this technology? Like, what what harms can it really do? I suppose as well as is the thing to think about here. Yeah, it's very hard to give an upper bound on the amount of harm that can, in principle, uh, be done here. 
what we should be aware of is that OpenAI has the explicit ambition to create artificial general intelligence. And the mood there, uh, as it is uh, at their competitor, uh, DeepMind in London, uh, is that they are very much on, on the way and in um, not so many years uh, they expect uh, to succeed. And I think that should be taken seriously uh, because the more I've seen the power of these large language models, the more I realize uh, what a large proportion of human intelligence that uh, language uh, facilities are. And there's really, if you think about what you achieve uh, as a person trying to uh, affect your environment in various ways, there may be some stuff that you do when you cook or when you work in the garden and so on that doesn't involve language. But I would suspect that for you, just like for me, uh, the biggest effect that you have on the world surrounding you uh, is usually via uh, different kinds of language acts. And uh, to me, this strongly suggests that you can get very far uh, using uh, AIs uh, that are restricted to, to uh, just uh, just using language. Uh, and if that is right, and if it's even possible to uh, achieve the so the the term artificial general intelligence is kind of problematic because. Uh, the, the the word general contains the suggestion that the machines should be able to do everything uh, that humans can do. But there could be, I mean, you don't need to be able to do literally everything uh, that humans can do in order to become a uh, dangerous uh, competitor about uh, uh, ruling the world, so to say. Uh, so, so, but but leaving that aside and, and focusing on on the power of an intelligence to um, to influence the world, uh, I think that it's not implausible that the idea of basically just scaling these models further towards GPT five and GPT six and so on. Uh, could create something that could be truly uh, transformative uh, and could even threaten the human hegemony uh, over the world. The common objection here, and something you would typically hear from people in the camp of Gary Marcus, is that uh, this can't happen because uh, these machines don't have any goals that that uh, would amount to uh, taking over the world and or uh, resource acquisition or or anything like that 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 has been much talked about in the tradition of Yudkowsky and Bostrom and other AI safety uh, pioneers uh, the, the claim here is that uh, these large language models they only have the goal of predicting the next word 
which it is said is, is obviously harmless. But I think that's a mistake. And uh, there are several reasons for this. One reason is that uh, training, uh, the criteria you use when training a model or the goals that you train the model for need not succeed in creating identical goals uh, for, for the uh, neural network itself. This is always going to be an imperfect procedure and it can be very hard to, to uh, um, completely control exactly uh, what the machine is up to. And I like the parallel with, with the humans here. Evolution uh, trained us uh, for the goal of maximizing inclusive fitness, essentially having as much uh, progeny as possible. But I think it would be really weird and downgrading and not very useful to claim that uh, I'm sitting here in a studio talking to you and I do all I'm doing is muscular movements in my face with the express purpose of maximizing inclusive fitness. That doesn't really capture the goals I have with uh, having this conversation and with all the other uh, stuff that I'm doing in the world. Very little of what I'm doing has that particular uh, aim. And it, it, this that view becomes especially uh, weird uh, when you consider phenomena such as uh, contraceptives and so on, where we're actively uh, working against uh, this uh, inclusive uh, fitness maximization. And when you say that just because uh, uh, a large language model was trained to predict the next word, uh, you're making the, the analogous uh, mistake. And, and, and we, because of the black box property of, of these uh, systems, we have very limited control of what uh, optimization goals we actually build into these systems. So this is dangerous and, and it, it becomes more dangerous uh, the more powerful these machines become. And this strategy that uh, OpenAI and, and Microsoft and others are employing now of releasing uh, uh, the, their products before they know that they are completely safe, it can make sense at the present stage. For instance, uh, whenever we use uh, these products, uh, we um, help uh, the, the developers um, by creating adversarial examples, such as you did with the tax uh, evasion uh, questions and so on. Uh, but this trial and error approach, the stakes become too large as you approach the, the transformative levels of intelligence, the AGI uh, type uh, stuff. That, that we're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, can I'm I, can worried I... that, yeah, yes. No, so go ahead and you, you finish up with your worries yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. So, so my worry here is that these companies are uh, too reckless 
so I mean, there's a couple of things going on there. Like the, you're saying that the scaling itself could be a problem. And I take the the point that the the critics' response, like the Marcus type view, or maybe the Chomsky type view, that well, all these things are doing is that they're trained to predict you know, what the next word should be in a, in a sentence, so that they can't do anything more. With that kind of evolutionary analogy, I, I get your point that you know the system could generate sub goals that aren't exactly in alignment with that that overall mm-hmm. arching goal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, maybe maybe another way of putting that that critics' perspective is that. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but at, at the moment, um, GPT and similar technologies they have no, they have no agency or powers beyond what's prompted by humans. If you know what I mean. So like it, it this the system isn't going to do anything unless it's prompted by a human to do something. Um, so like maybe it could be used by a malicious human actor to prompt to generate output that is manipulative or does something that affects other humans but like ultimately it can only act through the medium of human agency at the moment it you know it's not like maybe i, I could be wrong now again but it's not like it can seize control of i don't know you know like the energy grid or something <laughs> um it, it so it, just, it lacks that sort of direct agency power uh that you would need maybe to generate these fears that are traditionally outlined in the AI risk, existential risk literature about like, you know, converting us all into resources or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So there are two parts to this question. Uh, one is what does it want to do? And the other is what is it able to do? Uh, and as I emphasized, we really don't know uh, what this system uh, wants to do, and I think that it's overly reckless uh, to just assume that it never wants to do anything that uh, it hasn't been explicitly instructed to do. And as regards capabilities, we are very close to a point where things can start to become really dangerous. So if you look back to to the early uh, AI alignment uh, writings. Uh, from uh, 10 to 15 years ago by uh, Elsie Yudkowsky. He had scenarios for AI takeover, which involved um, uh, social manipulation uh, by the AI to use uh, humans uh, to run its own errands. Uh, and and uh, I think that that's, that's a very interesting idea because uh, it um, it removes the need uh, to develop robotics and at, at an early stage I also think that incidents like like uh, the Lemoyne case and there are other examples I could point to as well show that uh, such social manipulation is possible and if we look at what happened this week with the release of of, of GPT4, they have a section uh, in, in, in this report about uh, testing it for, for various uh, safety behaviors. And, and they had an outside uh, consultant working with a kind of red teaming for, for dangerous behavior. And they saw something uh, which, which was, I think, quite interesting and which connects to this Yudkowsky scenario. 
that I described. Namely, uh, they led GPT-4 to believe that it was in contact uh, with a human uh, over, uh, it, it wasn't the Amazon Turk, but it was some, some uh, similar structure. Uh, and uh, the uh, GPT-4 needed to um, access something uh, which it couldn't because it couldn't uh, solve, you know, this chap, what's it called, CAPTCHA exercise? When, when, when you're shown a sequence of images and you're supposed to indicate which one contains zebra crossings or... Uh, yeah, yeah, CAPTCHA, like yeah. CAPTCHA, yeah, I mean, yes. The original captures were words, but now they're kind of image recognition. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. So, so the uh, GPT-4 offered this human uh, some amount of money for doing the capture for it. And the human responded something like, uh, haha, uh, so maybe you were in fact a robot. And uh, GPT-4 um, improvised on the spot there and, and lied and said that, no, uh, of course I'm a human, but I'm visually impaired. And that's why I need help with this. And I think that this is a sign of, it's, a, it's an early and primitive level of the kind of uh, social uh, manipulation that uh, I think has unlimited uh, potential of, of being dangerous. I'm not super wor worried that the GPT-4 uh, in its present instantiation uh, will do, will cause uh, uh, some disruption or so on. But uh, as these technologies become more and more capable, I think that uh, we cannot ignore these uh, dangers. And I'm worried that uh, maybe GPT-4 has been released uh, recklessly early as well. Yeah, so, I mean, these like, yeah, social manipulation, I think, is, is a clear problem. I suppose, like, at the moment, my main concerns are in GPT are maybe slightly more mundane, and they have more to do with how it can be leveraged for misinformation and manipulation by malicious human actors. But... Like I take your point that instances like that are maybe the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak. That these are the in initial um, indications of of what what could happen with this um, technology. Yes. I'm trying to remember the name of those Yudkowsky thought experiments. Was it were they like the unboxing thought experiments or something like that? But it was like to get out of the box. The AI could get out of the box through yes, social manipulation. Yes. It's it's essentially a scenario yeah. maybe depicted in the movie. Um, What's it called? The the AI movie Ex Machina. Ex Machina, yeah. Except that you're dealing yes. with a an android robot in in that instance, but it is it's essentially that that type of scenario that's that's depicted there. Yes. Yeah, and I uh, suppose if if one of the goals here, which it seems to be, is to integrate LLMs with other platforms and other services, then I think you probably do start to kind of get into more dangerous territory as well if there's sort of some cross linkage between the systems you know what i mean if, if a prompt can from gpt can prompt another um, ai system to do something else which has sort of real world implications then i think you're 
obviously into more more dangerous territory. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so I mean, can I yeah, elaborate? Yeah. No, no, go on. Can I elaborate a little bit more on, on, on this uh, artificial general intelligence uh, issue? There was uh, a document uh, released in February by OpenAI and, and uh, signed and possibly written by their CEO, Sam Altman, about their approach to artificial general intelligence. And uh, uh, re regarding uh, safety issues. Uh, and, and this report contained a lot of good stuff that shows that they have in-house competence and uh, understanding of some of these very important issues in AI alignment. But as was pointed out quickly by uh, blogger Scott Alexander, uh, this report is unconvincing and uh, what Scott Alexander did was, was he made a parallel to if Exxon had released a, a statement concerning global warming where it would elaborate with all the language from, from uh, climate science and, and uh, maybe even climate activism about the importance of taking climate change seriously and so on and so forth. And imagine ExxonMobil saying that at the point where uh, climate change starts becoming really, really serious, we promise that we will do uh, everything we can to, to make the world safe from uh, global warming and we will cut down on uh, fossil fuel uh, uh, burning and so on and so forth. But we're not taking these steps now. We're only going to take it at the point when, when global uh, warming becomes a really, really urgent issue. And, and not even uh, questioning its behavior up to now and so on in, in um, pumping up the CO2 level in the atmosphere. And, and what Scott Alexander pointed out was that this is very much what, if you translate uh, global warming into uh, artificial intelligence here. This is very much what, what uh, Sam Altman and OpenAI were saying uh, in this statement. Uh, we promise to uh, behave uh, very um, responsibly in a future where we get close to, to uh, uh, dangerous intelligence uh, levels. But he was saying that this at the same time as, as they've been releasing uh, unaligned uh, AIs like uh, uh, chat uh, GPT. And it's really, uh, I, on one hand, I think that it's good that they have sort of cutting edge uh, AI safety and AI alignment knowledge in-house. But on the other hand, uh, I think that the company incentives and the incentives creating created by, by the uh, race dynamics, uh, the market dynamics and so on, uh, make them behave in a way that, that uh, I don't think that the public really has reason to, to trust them to do the right thing. 
Yeah, it's an important point. I mean, I I know some of the people working in the kind of policy and ethics team, as I said, in, in OpenAI. Um, one of them in particular is a guy called Miles Brundage, who I've known for a few years. I've written stuff with him actually in the past. Um, and you know, I I've met him. Yeah. Uh, like I can't claim to be like very good friends with him now, just to be, be clear, but we have like interacted a, yeah. a few times over the years. And I'd like to believe that he's a, you know, pretty sensitive to all these issues. Like he basically started out as a kind of existential risk researcher and ended up with open AI. Um, yes, and there are more such people uh, in, in, in open AI. But, yeah. but my point here is, is that uh, the fact that they have really good sensitive people there uh, is is not a guarantee uh, that I mean even very good people uh, can be susceptible uh, no. to unaligned uh, incentives uh, in in the company culture and so on. No, ab- absolutely. And uh, so that, that was the point I was going to circle around to. I just just for transparency reasons, I just want to say that I do mm-hmm. obviously know people. I have some connections there, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, I mean, absolutely. I think they're very important lessons to learn here from previous is instances of corporate malfeasance. So, I mean, ultimately, OpenAI is a company, and I'm going to have another interview about sort of the economics of GPT. But like, there's presumably there's some kind of business model or business case for the development of this technology. That's why you know, Microsoft are interested in it. This isn't a, a charitable organization developing a technology for kind of. The world good per se, even though maybe some people there believe that's what that that is what they're doing. They started out very yeah. much that way, but but uh, in the meantime, yeah. they have become more commercialized. And so, yeah, look, I mean, the, the analogy with climate change is an interesting one. Insofar as mm-hmm. you probably have very sort of similar instances or uh, kind of parallel tracks, and you know, greenhouse effect is discovered in the 1800s, so we were aware of the risks associated with you know, a carbon-based fossil fuel technology. Um, and as we now know, you know, most of the fossil fuel companies were fully aware of the the risks or there were in-house teams that were talking about the risks of, of this you know, back in the middle part of the 20th century. Um, basically, we have a similar phenomenon happening here with the development of AI that, you know, the theoretical risks have been around for some time. We have these examples from these documents that you're showing here that they're, they're, they're testing these technologies and they are having these red flag mm-hmm. events. Uh, so it is sort of a dangerous parallel track of development. And there can absolutely be corporate capture. You know, be, people are, are get captured by corporate agendas, even if their intentions are good. Um, and uh, they can go down a, down a pathway that might be uh, very kind of troublesome and difficult to Reverse. Uh, uh, just a couple more questions, maybe before we wrap up. Um, what I mean, what about this? I think about you kind of alluded to this there, just in, in your answer about how they started out and how they've become what they've turned into. Open AI, like the clues in the name that the idea here was about openness and transparency. They've now backtracked from that very clearly with GPT four. Yes. What do you think of that decision? Do you think that's a responsible approach to take, or I'm. I'm very glad that they are becoming less open because uh, I believe that uh, the more uh, uh, the more open source products, the more open you are uh, with the, the products uh, you release, 
the more you contribute to accelerating uh, the, the general race uh, towards what I consider to be potentially very, very uh, dangerous uh, AI levels. And uh, uh, they kind of praised themselves in the release report uh, for GPT-4 uh, this week uh, for, for showing this, this uh, openness constraint. They are not even telling us uh, exactly how, how large uh, the model is and so on. So, so, so there's, oh, the, they have increasing levels of secrecy. That's a good thing. They praise themselves for it. But I need to ask them if if you are so eager to not accelerating uh, this race, uh, why don't you simply refrain from releasing these products? OpenAI Open has has been the number one driver of, of uh, since 2019 at least. Uh, of, of of these uh, large, bigger and bigger large language models. Yeah, um, maybe another question, I think kind of linked to this speed of development issue about, oh, you know, we're going to do this responsibly, but not until maybe it's too late. Um, like, oof. Like what? What is an appropriate pace of development? Like what? What do you think should be happening here? I mean, should, should we be developing this technology at all? Should we be looking to restrict it completely, or is there a way of doing this in a very kind of slow and responsible way that avoids the risks? I mean, yeah. I, like, yeah. I, let me just put on the table my my own thoughts is that I think mm -hmm. you're never going to create a risk free product, really, or risk free technology. Right. right and so is that and and if the risks are so large which you kind of again if you follow some of the arguments in the existential mm -hmm. risk literature like the the bostrom yudkowsky type view mm -hmm. the risks here are really really large so does that not just going to warrant just don't do it yeah that's that's probably impossible and if we had talked about this uh two years ago uh, I would have been more skeptical skeptical about uh, slowing down uh, the race at all. Uh, the reason why I'm now speaking more in favor of perhaps using regulation or perhaps just using political and social pressure on these companies, I don't know exactly the details of, of, of how we should try and slow this thing down, but I I do think that it's an approach that that has ought to be part of how we uh, handle this very dangerous AI issue. And one reason for my change of heart here is that the uh, task of AI alignment, uh, making uh, the AIs have uh, goals and uh, drives and desires that are uh, aligned with our values, human values, uh, human flourishing, and so on. Uh, this project has been, it hasn't advanced very 
rapidly compared to what one would have hoped. It's looking more and more like we may not have an AI alignment solution ready in time for the really big and transformative AI breakthrough. Uh, so that part seems very difficult. The regulation part or whatever, uh, the slowdown part is looking uh, very, very difficult too for all kinds of uh, market competition reasons, including the, the, the uh, international uh, issue. I mean, do we really want uh, China to uh, catch up and, uh, and uh, uh, pass uh, the West in AI development? That's, that's a, I mean, it's a le legitimate uh, question to ask in this context, but, but all these difficulties not, notwithstanding, I think that we have reason to look very, very seriously into how we can uh, slow things down. And it, I, I, I don't believe in entirely stopping this development, but the more we can slow it down, the better are the opportunities for AI alignment research to, uh, to deliver on time. And otherwise we would be in trouble. What do you think the odds are uh, or should we draw any um, sort of uh, hope from or solace from, let's say, the, the historical analogy here with the development of nuclear weaponry, right? So we did basically have an arms race, a race, a race mm. to the precipice. We developed the technology. Mm. And then it's I know it's imperfect, but essentially we haven't used them in anger since they were first developed, really. I mean, what well, do you think of, of of basically something similar happening with AI that, you know, there is this race yeah. to develop the technology, we realize its dangers, and then there's some sort of international constraint or restraint in the yeah. in the use of it. Is that is that even feasible? So in my view, it's a wonderful, wonderful achievement that in the 78 years or whatever it is since the making of the atomic bomb, this bomb is... The, the, in, in the exclusive possession by uh, 10 or so uh, nation states. And there are no private owners that we know of, uh, of, of atomic bombs. We have been really, really successful uh, in uh, stopping the uh, proliferation of, of, of nuclear weapons uh, before we get to a point where there are so many actors around the world with nuclear weapons that uh, um, that uh, the the situation becomes uh, totally uh, untenable but but one reason why we have been so successful is that the making of nuclear weapons the, the manufacturing of them uh, requires uh, very big and very visible industrial uh, processes so, so that makes it easier to monitoring what, uh, what's going on in other uh, countries. Uh, and the situation with uh, artificial intelligence uh, seems very, very different because it's mostly just uh, software. And software is, is information and information wants to be free. So, so uh, 
it's uh, the non-proliferation problem here is uh, rather more difficult. But I don't think that we should uh, give up and, and uh, say it's uh, impossible. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. Obviously, we're we're fortunate in the sense that nuclear weaponry requires, as you say, such large scale infrastructure, and it's mm. it's hard to do it in secret. Um, although, obviously, there have been some attempts to do it in the in the past. And again, look at you know, we shouldn't maybe be too um, confident in or too complacent about. Uh, nuclear weapons since they are still proliferating absolutely i mean we still are in a yeah. dangerous situation and yeah, we yeah. have been reminded about this this last year in a very brutal way so, yeah so th that i think that that is important to bear in mind it's just maybe maybe there's uh, there's some solace from that historical analogy but I, there's a there's a paper that was actually written a long time ago by a guy called um well long relatively speaking back back in 2014 2015 by a guy called Matthew Scherer about the regulation of AI, which actually points to those two problems or disanalogies with the regulation of, of nuclear weaponry. Um, he, he refers to it, I think, in the paper as the, the discreteness and discreteness problem, which is unusual because it's basically there's two words in, in English that sound the same but have two, yeah. two different meanings. Uh, discreteness, in, one in the sense that you can do it in secret, in a kind of clandestine, yes. discreet way, and then discreteness in a fragmented sense that you can kind of develop these technologies across many different, sorry, uh, companies or organizations. And then it's when they all kind of knit together that it becomes a, an existential uh, threat or when they're kind of operationalized in, in a certain way that they become a threat. So those are, I think, important kind of disanalogies between nuclear non-proliferation and AI non-proliferation, I think. So, yeah. Yes, very interesting, yes. I don't know how to effectively conclude this conversation. Um, <laughs> I mean, how I, I suppose the, the one of the questions I was going to ask you was like, how worried are you and how worried should we be? But I guess we've kind of answered that, which is a, a lot, maybe. Yes. And, and uh, the last uh, few years of accelerating uh, AI development uh, have shortened uh, my timelines. I'm, I'm, there is still huge uncertainty uh, in when to expect transformative AI. But just three, four years ago, uh, my median guess would have been something like 30 years from now or something like that. And uh, it's still possible that, that uh, we have that amount of time for solving AI alignment before we have transformative AI. But uh, when I talk to people uh, in the Bay Area around Silicon Valley and Berkeley and so on, there's a sense there that it, things can happen within five or ten years, possibly. I mean, nobody's certain, but 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 they are talking about those kinds of timeframes. And if we get transformative AI uh, five years from now. I very, very much doubt that uh, things would go well because uh, the AI alignment project is not, I think, in a position to, to deliver the necessary solutions uh, in uh, five years. And this is why I'm so concerned that uh, we need to slow down this uh, 
race towards the precipice. Okay, I think uh, that's going to be that's going to have to be as good a place as any to leave it. Uh, thanks uh, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Um, okay. So